Nayaswami Bharat, and the talk this morning will be given by Badri Matlock. So we'll begin uh, this uh, portion by reading from Rays of the One Light, which are weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita, written by Swami Kriyananda. This week is, How High Should We Aspire? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. The passage this week is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. I say unto you that except your righteousness shall, ex shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharaohs, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The easiest explanation for these words is that they were spoken in criticism of the scribes and Pharisees, particularly since Jesus was often verbally attacked by them and stood up to them fearlessly. However, it wouldn't have been much of a challenge to the disciples who aspired to spiritual perfection to tell them, don't be like those who lack any such aspiration. Jesus, in fact, says only a few verses later, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What Jesus was referring to here then was the self-righteousness of the priests. Don't seek perfection, he was saying to his disciples, in the image you project toward others. Don't be satisfied with a goodness born merely of ego definitions. The highest virtue is to transcend the very thought of personal virtue in the realization of God alone as the doer. Before this realization, even the thought, I am kind, or I am truthful, is self-limiting. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the seventh chapter, yet hard the wise Mahatma is to find that man who saith, all is Vasudev. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, 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 oh. Good morning, everyone. As Anadi said, my name is Badri, and <clears throat> I'd like to also welcome you to Sunday service this morning. And um, just as I often reflect, what a tremendous blessing it is to share the spiritual path together in divine friendship and seeking. We'll start with the reading here from Whispers from Eternity, Paramahansa Yogananda's beautiful book of prayers. O king of all our ambitions, open the door of noble aspirations in the mansion of our souls. Open our heart bud to thy love and let the fragrance of our love escape its prison of ego to merge in thee. On winds of cosmic perception, may our fragrance be swept to thy temple of infinity. O king of all true ambition, throw open wide thy windows everywhere. In the red cloud at sunset, in the rosy glad clouds at dawn, in every charm-clad dream of human hopes. 
open the doors of all noble aspirations that lead out from our ego mansions onto the vast panorama of thy bliss. Let our fragrance blow with thy breath, reminding all nature of thine unseen presence. It's beautiful. So our topic this morning, uh, how high should we aspire? And this interesting reading from the Bible um, about our righteousness, our goodness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, you know, reflecting on this, as Swami writes in the reading, you know, how basically, how laudable is it to exceed the righteousness of these kind of bandits and, and thieves, if, if not all that bad. Um, but, you know, what is righteousness? We think um, of the virtues of the goodness of righteousness. But for the devotee, for the yogi, it's more than that. You know, it's more than just right action, as much as it is action that which takes us to God and leads to our own inner freedom. So this would be a more true and deeper meaning to the, to the reading and to the concept of our own righteousness as yogis. Um, if we take a simple, you know, innately divine quality like love and we examine where does it come from? As Swami writes in yet another of his beautiful songs, what is love? Is it, uh, is it only ours? Or does it whisper in the flowers? You know, is it just a dream? Or does it laugh in every stream? And the love expressed by the masters and by God that we aspire to is far greater than any human love that we can experience or that we can offer ourselves. As Swami Kriyananda once commented, looking at an image of his guru, Yogananda's guru, Sri Yukteswar, he said, I see so much love in those eyes. And Yogananda, knowing his guru, Yukteswar, for the stern and stoic disciplinarian that he was, said with a chuckle, there's no love in those eyes. <laughs> but he could, he could laugh at this because he knew that his guru manifested the perfect, all-consuming love of God that exceeded any element of personality and that we, too, aspire to um, more than any any human expression. But back to this idea of, you know, how high should we aspire? Um, there has to be a sort of dynamic tension in the life of the devotee. We know, obviously, we're here to aspire all the way to nothing short of God-realization. But we also have to honor and work with our own present reality. You know, it would be inauthentic to do otherwise. And to spiritual you know, aspirants, authenticity is everything. Sincerity is everything. And so there's sort of this, again, tension between a passive reliance on <clears throat> God's grace and our own divine will, our own self-will and expression. And I heard a little anecdote once that describes this point well. It's a little story about two monks, two Buddhist monks, who were out walking by the seaside. And as they were walking along, they encountered, encountered this disturbing sight. The whole beach where they were walking um, was just washed ashore with fish that had been carried on the beach there from a great storm. 
And so it, it was recent, and these fish, many of them lay you know, squirming and dying there in the sun, gasping for air. And the two monks had very different reactions. The first, in his compassion, ran out and began frantically saving the fish that were still alive, casting them back into the sea. And a few moments later, he looked up and saw his brother monk, who also in his compassion and seeing this sight, had sat down in meditation and was calmly absorbed within. And he ran to his brother monk and he said, help me, what are you doing? We have to save the lives of these pitiful creatures. And his brother monk said, look at you and your frantic attempt to rescue these creatures. You may save a few of thousands, but in my calm stillness, look what good I can do in my prayer and contemplation on life and death. And so a bit extreme, perhaps, the two sides of the coin there, but reflecting on this, you know, I think it's actually more true from my perspective, anyhow, that it's actually the first monk who had the right approach. And of course, it's going to be a blend of the two, but we have to do action, sometimes frantic action in this world. But the more we can do it, again, as a blend from a centered place, from our meditation practice, and we can go about a tremendous action in this world, saving the lives of fish or doing whatever our job or task at hand may be. Um, but to be sure, there is a great work to do, as Kriyananda was often told by his guru. And so this is the first key to this concept of righteousness and aspiration, is that we simply have to get to work. We have to do action, and hopefully action that frees us. But in truth, energy has its own intelligence, as Swami Kriyananda often remarked. If we can put out energy in as much of a positive way as we can, it will take shape, it will take form, especially with the guidance of a true guru, to that which will free us. So right action from where we now stand, whatever that may look like. And another beautiful example from Sri Yukteswar is this timeless and peerless quote uh, for the devotee where he says, um, the past lives of all men are dark with many shames. Everything will improve in the future if we are making spiritual effort now. So there it is, just simply make the effort. And we will find God from wherever our present reality is. Um, Yogananda remarkably had a great sense of humor and he would tell certain jokes including this one about this Irish woman immigrating to the United States and there she is with the immigration official who opens her bag and finds a little flask there and he says well what's this and she says oh it's simply water and he opens it and <coughs> says Irish whiskey and she says glory be to God it's a miracle <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> so, a little facetious maybe, but there she is bringing God into the equation. Um, and in fact, <clears throat> in fact, numerous are the stories through the lives of the saints and the scriptures of true thieves, bandits, murderers who have found God, or at least who have made tremendous spiritual progress. So, where are we now? to say that we can't, too, aspire much higher from our own present state of relative goodness. Um, I think of one of my favorite activities in the world 
which is to surf. And just to be out in the ocean is a divine experience. You know, it's a, it's a sadhana to be there in the presence of God in this immense body of water. But the actual um, action of surfing, and I know Swami Kriyananda, who I do not think was much of a surfer, um, <laughs> used this example a number of times. And there's a beautiful relationship with the ocean where the surfer, and this is true in many activities, but in the case of surfing, your own ability, your own intuition and skill it has to be in concert with this powerful force in the ocean that, you know, humility is required and this dance. Um, and so a great surfer has a skill set that's honed, but far more than that, he has an intuitive relationship with the ocean, a respect with nature. And it's a beautiful dance, as Yogananda said on the spiritual path, a divine romance with God. And this is the life of the devotee. And our self-expression in surfing in the spiritual life becomes far greater and not lesser through the wisdom guidance of a guru, um, of a true master. And so the, the blessings of the guru and of God are there, to be sure, in our lives, and their grace is there. Um, a few months ago, I was visiting my father in Costa Rica with my family. And we had the opportunity to go out on a whale-watching boat. My dad organized this uh, kind of fun tourist experience for us with the kids. And so we went out on this 20-foot or so boat at 8 o'clock in the morning, and there were five or six other um, passengers with us there on the boat, tourists. And we had almost immediately this blessing, kind of rare sight of this huge pot of these dolphins, and a mother humpback whale and her calf. And so this was already a beautiful blessing. But as we were going out um, on the water that morning, I noticed in our um, company, the few other passengers, you know, strangers that were there, was this woman who, um, she was a young m mom. She had a, like a nine-month-old baby with her. And there she was, um, as she was nursing the child and holding the child, I just sort of noticed incidentally that her eyes were closed and from years of meditation and just you know being around this and practicing it I know I just noted that she was in an uplifted state she wasn't just closing her eyes I didn't n make that much of it but I noticed that this woman was inward and she was centered she was she was uplifted and so a little while later her baby was awake we had seen the beautiful sea creatures and my daughter Tulsi, who's about five and loves little babies and kids too, she was kind of making faces and playing with the baby, and who was right next to us. I, I said to Tulsi, "Ask, you know, her mom what the baby's name is." And so Tulsi worked up the courage and she said, "What's your baby's name?" And the mom smiled and she said, "Ananda." <laughs> and my mouth. Tulsi looked at me and my mouth must have been kind of sideways and open and. I looked at the woman and I said something like, we're from Ananda. <laughs> um, so here we are in this boat in Costa Rica with this baby Ananda. And it turns out mom and at least mom and her partner are Kriyabans, they're Kriya Yogis in the tradition of Harihar Ananda and Sri Yukteswar and our lineage of masters. So there's God's grace, there's God's magnetism 
in this remote and incredibly at odds circumstance. Um, and such is the life of the devotee, that miracles become really quite commonplace. Um, <clears throat> but again, to go back to the reading and the idea that, you know, kindness, that goodness is basically insufficient, not insignificant, but that virtue alone is insufficient. Um, again, if we look at a, a quality like kindness, you know, to be kind, to be good is a tremendous, you know, aspiration and good quality. But any ego-born quality is binding to the soul. You know, as Swami Kriyananda often remarked, good karma is still karma, and it binds us. And so far better through our goodness is to be expressing God's goodness. Better than I am kind is to express God's infinite and loving kindness towards all. Um, there's a beautiful example from the Indian epic, the Mahabharata, or excuse me, the Ramayana, and where at the end of this incredible battle of good and evil, light and dark, um, Rama wins or rescues his, his princess, his beloved Sita. And at the, towards the end of this, she, her purity, Sita's purity is called into question. And without hesitation, she calls upon uh, Agni, the Lord of Fire, the God of Fire, and a great fire is set ablaze, and it, immediately she steps into this fire and offers herself, and she's untouched. You know, she cannot be consumed by the flames, and her goodness, her purity is proven far beyond any shadow of human goodness. You know, she was a divine being herself and expressed that purity. And so we have to transcend even good qualities like kindness and goodness. I naturally, being a parent of young children, uh, have an, at least a mild interest in different schools of thought with regard to parenting and education. And recently, some friends here at Ananda shared with me this article about um, the Inuit people of, of North America. And really interesting, again, without getting into the, the article in depth, um, was one kind of key point that was made that essentially the Inuit adults, the people, they never get angry or they, maybe it's better expressed that they never express anger. But in any case, um, I found it fascinating that they basically don't submit to this lower nature, um, but they also don't suppress it. It talks about other ways that they work with children and um, just with one another, but to, to play out anger or, again, maybe the emotions underlying anger in, I think, a healthier way. Um, certainly, I'm no Inuit in that I never express <laughs> anger and probably wouldn't survive at sub-zero temperatures. But I, you know, recently, my son Jay, um, who's three, speaking of not expressing anger, was about just this week, is a few days ago, I was going to take a very large pair of pruning shears to the body of my truck to, <laughs> I guess, do some, some detailing. And so I shouted, Jay, no, stop. And he got really sullen and he kind of hid behind the truck. And I immediately, you know, I may not never get angry, but I know when to admit 
I overreacted or whatever. And so I just knelt down low and I said, Jay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yelled. I shouldn't have raised my voice. And his expression turned and he just said, I forgive you. You shouldn't have raised your voice. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that went pretty well. <laughs> but, you know, again, being interested in this thought, there's also this, um, this train of thought in parenting that we shouldn't tell our children, you're so good at this, or, um, you know, you're, you, what is it, you're so, in, you're so smart, or things like this. And basically it's that we're praising them, right, for qualities that um, they, they have to develop in themselves, they have to aspire to. And, well, I, I think there's validity in this. You know, naturally I'm drawn to the philosophy of education for life, of Swami Kriyananda, which, um, again, it's just a seminal teaching that he wrote in that book and that we employ in our school systems here. But that we can work with children in such a way as to say, not only, you know, oh, I guess the, excuse me, to go back to the, you're, you're so smart, for example, the alternative approach would be to say, you're so hardworking, you know, you work so hard at that, which is, again, a, a step in the right direction to say that I'm praising you for the energy you put out to develop this quality. But better still, again, I think in an education for life approach and the development of the soul of a child, of a, an adult, is to say, let me instruct you, let me help facilitate and guide you in direct experience that will show you how being hardworking, how being kind will lead to your own greater happiness and freedom. And that's how God works with us. You know, all life is like a school. All life is education and entertainment, as Yokohanda said. So the, the train of thought that leads us towards our own highest potential. You know, if you look not only at children, but great minds and, um, you know, throughout history, saints, Look at Thomas Edison, you know, the, the famous 40,000 experiments he went through to find the right filament for the light bulb. You know, at 20,000, his colleagues were pleading with him to stop. And uh, was it his, you know, his hardworking nature that caused him to persist to 40,000? It was his passion. It was his belief, if not stated in God, then his, you know, awe-inspiring passion for the universe and for the beauty and just for the creativity that expresses in the divine spirit everywhere. And so this has to be our, our passion as devotees, is to fulfill our own highest potential in whatever it is we're doing. And so the energy, in fact, that precedes or animates our action is in actuality far more important than the action itself. Certainly we should perform good action but more important is the energy that and the intention that goes into it. And this is, of course, born of meditation. Um, but what this really gets down to is what's noted in the reading and what's one of the absolute gemstones of the entire spiritual path that Kriyananda and Yogananda emphasize again and again, that we see God as the doer in everything in life through ourselves and through all human experience, God is the one doing it. And um, Swamiji would tell also some jokes. And 
on a number of occasions I heard him tell this one about the this humorous incident about the Irish priest, again, the Irish, um, <laughs> who visits the farmer. And he says, upon seeing his farm there, says, what a fine farm you and God have created for yourself here. And the farmer responds and says, well, that may be so, Father, but you should have seen it when God had it all to himself. <laughs> and so, as any farmer will tell you, it's a lot of hard work. And I have a number of friends who are farmers and spent a little time here farming with Anata when I arrived. So I at least have a sense of what it takes. And, you know, so it is. And now I farm children and I farm community. I mean, so it is that the spiritual path is tremendous hard work. You know, it's farming. It's working in concert with nature. It's putting out spades of energy to help cultivate the finer qualities uh, in ourselves and in life. As Yogananda said, weed the garden of your life. You know, Ananta is out there weeding forever. <laughs> you know, all of us as devotees are out there cultivating our own souls. And this is karma yoga. This is the secret of right action. And in fact, it's the, the other side of the coin of right action that when we see God is doing it through us and through every circumstance of life, then everything becomes right action. It's not to say that you know, we're perfect in everything we do by any stretch, but it's true that the more we can bring God into it, the more God is simply there. And we learn even from our mistakes and what we might think of as wrong action in a God-moving direction. Um, and then Swami Kriyananda gives a beautiful example, or I should say instruction, about this teaching of God as the doer. Because, yes, that's a tremendously important principle, but he also says that affirmation is not the same as wisdom. Affirmation is not the same as wisdom. To really see that God is the doer, we have to experience God more and more inside in meditation as love, as joy, as these divine qualities. Um, and instead of just praying to God, we have to listen. You know, Swami says, how can we approach the holy presence of God if we do all the talking? You know, we have to have this relationship, this divine romance with God. And as Yogananda said, meditation will support our work and work will support our meditation. Uh, Brother Turyananda, another disciple, said, our behavior during the day makes our meditation at night. And isn't that true? That every thought, you know, every action that we have, every intention, um, directly correlates, not in some nebulous way, but directly correlates to that moment every night, every morning when we sit to meditate, and we close our eyes and go within. And no wonder it's so hard to meditate. You know, we have to work at it from both ends of the equation. But um, meditation is key. And if we love God, if we have devotion, if we have sustained devotion and meditation, then we truly can know God. So just to kind of bring it back, you know, this is a supremely practical teaching. And it's what I love about the spiritual path of self-realization, is that God is the doer, you know, finding God in, in everything, in everyone, 
and in ourselves in meditation is a supremely practical teaching. For example, in every problem, in every obstacle, there is an exact and immediate and appropriate solution at hand, bar none. And it's not found always easily or readily or obviously, but it is absolutely there. And by there, I mean here, at the point between the eyebrows. And it's found through love. It's found through divine joy, not by meeting the problem on the level where it's at. And there's a beautiful story from the life of St. Francis of Assisi. In the year 1219, there was a battle of the Crusades at a city called Damietta. And there was a slaughter. 6,000 uh, Christians were killed that day um, when they were sieging this city by the Muslims. And St. Francis was actually present with some of the brothers. And he asked to be sent to the front lines to convert the enemy by the power of love. And the general acquiesced, but warned him that his head would be on a spike by nightfall on the city gates. And St. Francis went forth, and not speaking their language, he called out, Sultan, Sultan. And taking him for an emissary, they took him to the Muslim king. And the Muslim king actually spoke French. And so he had an audience with St. Francis. And he was an ardent follower of the prophet Muhammad, who also deeply respected Christ. And he also observed in St. Francis his plain and deep devotion and godliness. And in seeing this, he granted, he asked St. Francis to pray for him, and he granted him a special charter for he and his brothers to travel through the Holy Land on pilgrimage, unobstructed. And meanwhile, Christian reinforcements arrived, and the Muslims and Christians began slaughtering each other anew. But how beautiful is it and how true that you know the world will go on, sometimes in, in slaughter, to be sure, sometimes just in the, the myriad of human experiences. But for the devotee, there's only love, and there's only God happening in our lives. And that is our aspiration from whatever our present reality is, that is the pole star that will guide us if we just anchor ourselves to that reality. So, again, at once, you know, our divinity um, in the kindness, again, back to this simple quality, in the kindness that we share for God, you know, a simple act of kindness or love is the most important thing we can do in the world, in our spiritual life. So not to, to lessen the divine qualities that we can express through our virtues, but as I said at the outset, what a beautiful and divine blessing to share the spiritual path, to aspire to God, to the highest within us, and to support one another in this divine romance with God. Oh, may we all just receive and always share this blessing.